0: Storytelling plays a fundamental role in creating change. Whether it's the stories we tell about ourselves, about our businesses, or the stories we share to inspire revolutions, an engaging narrative can literally change the world. Join me, Nathan Scolaro, and some very special guests, including Dumbo Feathers Editor-in-Chief Barry Liverman, Director Maya Newell, Writer Pico Aya, and Singer-Songwriter Mama Kin, for Storytelling for Change. A four-week deep dive online to hone your skills and master the art of storytelling to create impact. Find out more and sign up at smallgiantsacademy.com.au. Hey, it's
1: Kirsty here. We're excited to share the first in our podcast series on a good society. In this series, we're unpacking the current systems we live, work and play within and ask how they can do better and be better for people and the planet. What does it mean for us to thrive with one another within our planetary bounds? What structures are currently getting in the way of that? What are the stories we need to be telling to get there? Throughout this series, we look at who we need and want to be as a society, and how we can use our heads, hearts, and hands to get us there. First cab off the rank in this series is Nate Hagens. He's a speaker, educator, and thought leader from the States who tackles the big-picture issues facing human society and our planet. Nate is also director of the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future. It's an organisation that focuses on educating and preparing society for the coming cultural transition. Nate's podcast, The Great Simplification, like a lot of his work, explores money, energy, the economy, and the environment, and brings in world leaders on these subjects to unpack how everything fits together and where we go from here. Barry spoke with Nate about sense-making and the systems, science, underpinning many of the crises we currently face, and we loved the conversation so much that we're bringing him back for more. So stay tuned for Barry's series with Nate, which will delve deeper into many of the issues that they touch on in this episode. For now, enjoy this episode of the Dumbo Feather Podcast.
0: I'm really talking about seeding in the culture, narratives that can get us from here to a better vision of that future, like that better outcome. Then I think I think seeding in the culture, useful, hopeful, beautiful, even narratives that we can both comprehend the complexity and the wickedness of the problems, and have agency, that's really, that's really essential here. And I fear, uh, I fear a lot of things. (laughs) Spiders being one of them, but I fear that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I have a story about that.
0: Don't tell me spider stories.
2: (laughs) No, no, no. This is a good story. Just briefly, before I saw the light, I used to work on Wall Street, and I managed my clients' money, I was willing to risk my own money, but I wasn't willing to risk my clients' money. I hired a neurolinguistic programmer to help me, and he said when you're afraid of something, you naturally move away from it. When actually you should move towards it a little bit. And so we trained he trained me with spiders because I was really afraid of spiders as well as losing money for my clients. So within 2 weeks he had me petting marbled orb weaver spiders at my house as a way to overcome my fear of spiders. And so in my life, sometimes when I'm afraid of something, I paradoxically go towards it a little bit. Uh, uh, unless it's really dangerous, of course.
0: I'm going to give you like a next level example of that, wherein okay, I am with you and I I feel what you're saying. And for spiders, I can't do it.
2: But. <laughs> <laughs> well, Australia has big ass spiders. <laughs> we do,
0: and they they can kill you. I'm just flagging. I'm not panning a red back.
2: At, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, yeah or yeah.
0: a funnel web anytime soon. However, giving birth to my children, we went before the birth of our first child our son um we went to this home birthing course with this like legend of birthing a midwife here called Rhea Dempsey and and she reframed pain she said okay so in life you run away from pain pain out hot you back away from it like the spider you you try to get as far away from pain as you can in inner and outer but definitely physical pain. And the thing you need to understand about childbirth is this is not danger. This pain is the pain of giving birth. So you need to walk towards it. You need to breathe into it. Yeah. Uh, it was the most profound reframing. i would never heard someone talk about pain like that. And it, it gave me the birth that I wanted.
2: If we apply that to our current cultural situation, I think people are afraid of, like you say, many things, but we're afraid of of consuming less, partially because we've gotten used to this level of consumption. So the average American consumes 100 times more energy than our bodies need to survive. The average Australian is around 80% of that. So 80 times more than our bodies need to survive. This is unsustainable. And we're going to have to, on average, and of course the distribution is unequal around the world, but we're going to have to use less energy and materials in the future. And on the surface, that sounds scary. But when you realize that our well-being and our happiness and the best things in life mostly don't require energy and materials. If if I ask you what are the five best experiences of your life, I doubt any of them were incredibly monetarily or energy intensive. It was probably something in nature, or with your kids, or with music, or with your loved ones, or your friends, or with food. And these things aren't going away. So as we head to what uh, my I call the great simplification, which is the downslope of a centuries long increase of adding more energy to the human system, we're going to simplify and that seems scary, uh, because partially because the unknown is scary. Um, But I, I think there's a silver lining there that we can replace monetary markers of wealth with actual markers of social human built and natural capital. Uh, in a way that, um, you know, if, if we get a lot of people on board, it, it might be good uh, in, in, in many ways. Yeah, there's a lot of things I'm fearful about it. Um, but I, I think for most people in the developed world and the global north, using less is not going to be that big of a deal. Uh, The global south is another question and that gets to distribution and how we can have a contraction and convergence. And that's a really complicated question. Um, But yeah, and but here's the thing. Most people, most governments, most, well, all governments, most corporations, they have no possibility of a, a reduction in GDP and consumption in coming decades. Everyone is planning for more growth um so,
0: wait, so-, so so okay so yes go back to that bit where we were talking about the things we're afraid of and the things getting in the way and how to build that cognitive and cultural bridge between fuck we're fucked i mean literally that's i, I went and saw hannah gadsby last night performing um, her comedy show here in a massive auditorium with 2,000 people. It was so great to laugh with 2,000 people for um, an hour and a half. And she was brilliant. But she was, you know, she opens the show with it's the end of the world as we know it. Um, Let's laugh anyway. You know, this kind of new cultural sticky concept that we're kind of helpless in the face of all of this, kind of new information, like it's new to a to the bulk of people that were driving off the cliff. No one really got that because of the consumption and the growth. And like to be honest, Nate, I, I don't know. Like I don't want to not travel to Europe. I want to travel to everybody's like that. And definitely that idea of the apocalypse and that it's a rational response to respond with hedonism and consumption. Like fuck it then, burn, baby, burn, let's party. Like there is a kind of these, these our, our hearts and souls can't, our hearts and souls and heads can't get around the complexity and the epicness of this problem. And I love that we're talking already about this because for me, um, extremes turn people off. No, like fear turns everybody off. Like we stop functioning properly you're talking about a complete reframe of the economy and how we live. Um, <laughs> and most people, when I was talking about my childbirth story, right, most people are like, why don't you get an epidural, you crazy lady? Like most people don't want to do the learning through the pain and suffering bit to get to like a high-growth sort of upskilling outcome or to get that holistic human experience. They're like, why wouldn't you bypass that? Like we're into shortcuts. We're into just tell me which pill to take, the red or the blue. And if you look at that movie again, what was it called? The Red and the Blue Pill? Oh, my God. The Matrix. The Matrix. If you look at that, like most people are like the guy who takes the pill that goes back in, he's like, I want to be rich, I want to have a steak and a big glass of wine and hot women. Like.
2: Yeah. So,
0: no one wants to be Keanu Reeves right now.
2: Not no one. Just a small percentage of people. Yeah, I
0: was gonna say
2: (laughs) we have to talk to those people and breathe life into their uh, awareness and their spirit of of going all in to help our situation. But that's why there's different messages for this. I think personally, I think the full truth of my course and my 20 years of synthesizing how energy, human behavior and ecology fit together is probably not for 8 billion humans. Um, there's different manage- messages for governments. There's different messages for activists. There's different messages for children and young adults. And there's there's different mas- messages for, um, you know, the general public, which is. After basic needs are met, the best things in life are free. There's probably an economic winter is coming scenario in the not too distant future. Um, Self-worth, your physical, psychological uh, situation, your friends, your network, your social capital, your skills, your knowledge, your health. These things are going to be your new net worth. And we've lived in this anomalous period of using fossil sunlight of the equivalent of 500 billion human labor equivalents relative to 5 billion real humans and this is unsustainable so I, I think getting to your question my Twitter uh handle is navigating the the narrow line between fantasy and doom and I think people like certainty and uncertainty like, I'm not sure what's going to happen. That actually feels bad to a person. So that's why we end up having extreme views of we're screwed. There's nothing. We're headed for a Mad Max future, or we're going to science the shit out of it. And technology is going to solve us. And we're going to be colonizing Mars. And all these people are Malthusians. Those poles gravitate. That- people goes to those.
0: Love that word. That was a cool word. Mal- which word malthusians
2: well malthusian well so thomas malthus was a preacher a couple hundred years ago okay. that famously said that um, the exponential growth of humans is going to outstrip the linear growth of our crop production and so there's going to be a die-off and he was wrong um, he was wrong because he he lived before we found fossil fuels and then Paul Ehrlich famously wrote a book called The Population Bomb in 1969, kind of saying the same thing. But then we went to debt and globalization to and and the uh, the Green Revolution with Norman Borlaug, where we used fossil fuels to create nitrogen fertilizer to boost global crop yields. And then we kicked the can again in 2009 when global central banks took over the the banking money creation model. So we we keep kicking the can of accessing more energy and materials. And personally, I think there are no more cans left to kick and the next big can is going to be in our minds. It's going to be in how we think about our consumption and our relationships, uh, because we're not going to be able to have more than the current 19 terawatt global economy, which works out to continually the global human economy of almost 8 billion people consumes energy, the equivalent of 19 terawatts, which is 190 billion 100 watt light bulbs turned on all the time. So that is on the backs of huge amounts of Non-renewable resources, and yes, we have a lot left, uh, but what's left is deeper, more costly, more environmentally dangerous, as CO two, et cetera, and so we're we're going to have to, you know, live differently quite quickly, and and that's what this is all about, and that's what my class is all about. You know, it's fascinating, uh, Barry. In my class, at the end, I've told the students a lot of uncomfortable things about the world um and first of all they all almost all appreciate professor i learned more bad things about the world than i imagined taking your class but i actually feel better than i did before i took the class because now i understand and i have a framework for what's going on but at the very end the last two weeks i give them the here's what i recommend and i ask them ahead of time what do you think the answers are and they're like uh more solar panels and don't eat meat and drive an electric car. And it was really none of that. It was all um, personal reflection on what makes them happy. And can they live differently, not to save the planet, but to be more flexible and resilient in their own lives. And just to kind of have a young person's look in the mirror at a night as a 19 or 20 year old, um, to see does all this consumption and this treadmill of constantly looking for likes and ordering things on the internet, is that the life I want to live in the next 70 years? And so to me, this starts with individuals recognizing their relationship with consumption and stuff and social status and trying to live like others. Like, I really don't think our culture has a problem with greed. I think we have a problem with envy, where we look at others and we want to get the social status that they have, and that's associated with having money or consumption, and it doesn't have to be that. We compare ourselves to others, and in this culture, we compare it based on how much stuff we have or how big our house is or the trips or whatever, but in prior cultures, and I expect in future cultures, we will compare ourselves to others using different metrics. Maybe how kind or how musical or how artistic or how good of vegetables they grow or any anything like that.
0: I love it. I love that you're talking about you know, who do we want to be? Because that was also an amazing thing in Hannah Gadsby last night. She was having a panic attack. It's a beautiful analogy. She was having a panic attack and her wife told her, you know, the first part of what she said was don't panic, which is hilarious. And then the second thing that she said to her, which was the effective bit, is who do you want to be? Don't panic. Who do you want to be? It's a great analogy for this concept. Yeah, who,
2: who do you want to be is uh, a, a great reframing relative to what do you want to have.
0: Yeah, but I think what do you want to have was toggled to who do you want to be, right? Because the question who do you want to be was shallower. Mm. Who do you want to be was like, oh, successful. It was a weird kind of shallow frame. And now what you're saying is we're gonna we're going go into the great simplification because there's like a big heady chunky juicy bit there of shit that none of us want to know, but we have to know, right. And you're you're a keeper of wisdom around that and knowledge and and we're here to have that conversation. And the people who listen to this podcast are broad and deep thinking um, communities of people. Many of them activists, many of them students, many of them high net worth who are thinking, what do I do with what currently has value in the world, which is financial currency? And I know that Mm. you were talking before that currency is going to change. And I deeply agree with that. Right now, financial currency is currency. But in the future, it will be, you know, musical talent, fresh water, arable land, uh, temperate climate. You know, it'll be a whole lot of other things. Friends. Friends, um, a good inner life, like a robust inner life that can experience joy and and wholeness in the face of dynamic changes. So, so I agree with you. Um, currency is going to change, but a lot of people listening to this have a lot of financial currency right now, and are like, what do I do with it now? What do I do with it? That's not reactive and untoggled um, to sense making. And and then I think there's this bit where the sense-making piece and that world, there's a lot of talking heads. There's a lot of people who are just kind of like smashing out these massive statistics and these epic problems. And there's not enough uh, conversation that's really helping break that down for, like you said, those different audiences, those different Mm -hmm. strata of people, some who have less and greater agency, some who have more social capital, more financial capital, like People are coming at this and want to hear what you have to say, but they're coming at it from such different agency and sense-making capacity.
2: So I recognized that this was going to happen during my lifetime 20 years ago. So I gave my clients their money back and I quit and I took my golden retriever to Alaska and we hiked for six months and I read books about neuroscience and anthropology and uh, climate change and energy and decided to dedicate my life to this so
0: wait a second why why did you realize that you're on wall uh,
2: street what got you well one of my clients uh was a billionaire wanted me to help him trade oil uh and so i started reading about oil and i'm like oh my god this stuff is like pixie dust it's so powerful and what it does And we're not paying for the externalities. When we buy it, when we consume it, we're only paying for the cost of extracting it from the ground, where ancient oceans and heat and pressure and millions of years condensed it into this like magical substance that we add to our economies, and we're not paying for the cost of pollution. The cost of CO2 is not included in the price of petrol in Australia or the United States or anywhere. Uh, So, I became fascinated with with that, and I ended up spending more time reading about that thing than I was managing my clients' money, and so I went and got my PhD uh, to study this stuff full time. But my, my point here is that I, so far, have been focused on getting it right and focused on the truth of how our global human ecosystem fits together, how a social species finding this giant cachet of buried powerful energy and is built an economic system and institutions and expectations around that, and what do we need in our brains as a socially evolved primate, and what are we doing to the natural world, and how does this all fit together, and how do we use money as an overlay? So I really have not spent much time, uh, partially because it's a small organization breaking the message down in a professional com- communications way to those different audiences I'm mostly just trying to understand exactly what's happening <laughs> And
0: what's awesome is that everyone is trying I think that a lot of people are trying now to take it in and then say okay I'm a politician like in Australia we've just had such an overhaul of our political landscape it's kind of it's hard to just get your head around that let alone the groceries I need to get for my house this week but like we have a climate-friendly government like a meaning yeah they care about the environment they care about the economy they care about society and how we're going to do this magical dance to get this rubik's cube back together in a new way so let's 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 keep going go on what we going to say
2: well, I was just going to say, I don't know why this is. Um, I have a podcast. It's called The Great Simplification. It's only started this year. Uh, it's number one in the world in the category of earth sciences. And for whatever reason, half of my listeners are from Australia and New Zealand. Okay. And I suspect, and I don't know, could just be some algorithm word of mouth thing. But I suspect it's because people living on those islands. I mean, Australia is a continent, but also an island. Um subconsciously or consciously recognize they're at the end of a global supply chain. And these concepts about limits to growth, environmental damage, sustainability feel more psychologically real than they would in Europe or or North America. And so people are paying attention to them more, it's just speculation.
0: Yeah, I don't know either and maybe everyone listening is having a thought about why that would be. I I feel like in Australia we have more cultural spaciousness in a way, um, weirdly. I just think that we have some things that hold us up. We're a bit more like Canada. We're way more like Canada than the US. We've got, um, you know, healthcare for all and, you know, there's, there's some social safety nets. Um, maybe that gives us more spaciousness but maybe not we definitely had the fires and the floods. Mm. like we've had these cataclysmic environmental events that are affecting large swathes of the community and uh, those who don't have the financial wherewithal can't get away from those situations. So as a collective, as a as a country, we need to get our head around this stuff. So that half of us, it's like the Titanic, literally half of us don't drown while those of us who can afford it get to higher ground. Like, I think we're literally in that. So it could be that.
2: I I agree. Um, So getting back to your comment that there's lots of people trying to sense make. um, I agree with that because there's so much going on and there's so many different lenses. You can look at the world from a social justice lens and be right you can look at the world from a climate change, ocean acidification sense. You can look at the world from a geopolitical war or a financial lens or an energy lens. But my work has tried to synthesize how they all fit together and it ends up with a quite a different lens. So most people look at the world from a money and technology lens that humans over time via markets and technological inventions will find answers to our problems. And there'll be some bumps along the road, but eventually we will overcome and eventually colonize outer space, et cetera. And so this technology, what they don't realize is our culture is energy blind. We don't realize like a fish that swims in water and doesn't know what water is. We don't appreciate or acknowledge how vital energy is to everything that we do, everything in your house or your studio or where I am, everything in my room right now took energy to mine, create, deliver, maintain, repair and dispose of. And so technology is wonderful. What we do is we have an idea and then we get some resources and we use energy and materials to create a product and then we sell that around the world our technology has been based on increasing amounts of energy Every single year, other than 2020, 2009, a couple years in the 1970s, five years in the 1930s, for the last 150 years, humans have used more energy every single year, other than those exceptions. Now, how much do we use and how important is it? A barrel of oil, which right now in the United States costs $85, does four and a half years of my physical labor. Okay? And the, uh, we use 100 billion barrel of oil equivalents of coal, oil, and natural gas every year. And we pay just for that cost of extraction, plus a little bit of profit for the oil company. So we are effectively adding... 450, 500 billion human labor equivalents to our workforce, and all of the economic textbooks and all of the political discussions and all of the technological hopes of the future, just look at technology as if it were some natural human birthright that will keep inventing stuff. At some point in the not too distant future, we're going to have less energy every year. And we're still going to have technology and hopefully uh, cooler, uh, more relevant to our lives technology, but we've never had to ask the question, what does technology do for us as energy declines? So as one example, the, uh, the three largest oil producers in the world are the United States, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. And the United States is now accessing shale oil, which we already had the really high quality cheap stuff then we went to the gulf of mexico and drilled under the ocean five miles and we went to alaska and got the north slope and now we're accessing what's called light tight oil or shale oil which is this source rock that's where all the other oil originated and migrated from there's nothing left after that so if the united states were to stop drilling today the existing wells that we've drilled for the last 20 years would decline 40 percent in one year and another 25 percent the next year and another 20 percent the year after that so we're in a situation where we have to keep drilling in order to even maintain production
0: yeah it's a ponzi scheme
2: yeah, it's a, it's a rapidly running treadmill. And then we're papering over monetary claims on that. And so it's it's really a, a tenuous situation. But the narrative out there is that, well, energy is, if you have $100 worth of energy, it's worth $100 worth of coffee or uh, technology or something like that. But everything in our world first requires energy. So energy is special but our economic system treats it the same as everything else is is a core point of of my research
0: so what i love is the confluence of things the way that your work and and so many in in the space of like daniel Schmachtenberger in the space of, of this thought leadership are saying uh like what kate raworth says what i love about what she does with donut economics for me a big shift was saying human imagination couldn't we were at a city-state, we were kind of stuck at a city-state imagination capacity. The economy was designed around city-state sort of exchange. And this new frame, this new human cognitive capacity, we need to do what's right behind you and I can't stop looking at it, which is the planet, the planetary now, hey, i
2: turn i turned that around so australia was in the front two you know, minutes ago <laughs> <laughs> thank
0: you that's so nice um because a lot of a lot of people in the northern hemisphere actually can't get their heads around what it's like to be in the southern hemisphere like australia feels really far away so it's nice to see we're all on the same blue planet and um and what i love is you're you're stretching us to have whole planetary imagination and that we need to, Actually, design our economy, however, that's going to look and be and behave and and hold us in relationship, to be to know that it is within the bounds of that beautiful blue planetary uh frame. That that is the limit for us. We can't consume more than that. And that these new techno-gods are actually not our saviors. Because I feel like It's a really great B-grade movie where we're like, oh, the new gods are Elon Musk. I mean, A, I don't want an 11-year-old to be the new god and I want us all, this is when I love what the Dalai Lama said, the next Dalai Lama. Did he say that? Someone said, someone really smart and spiritual said, the next um, spiritual icon would be community. The next Buddha would be community, would be sangha. And so that's saying that our collective consciousness can stretch to understand our place not only within our planetary boundaries but then that planet and its relationship to the cosmos. There is something here, Steiner spoke about it as well, there is a relationship, there's a kind of inhalation, exhalation. There is... um, there's something beautiful in here that I feel is connected to our consciousness, and i'm I'm staying a bit away from the head thing of the what isness um, just for a minute so that I can kind of breathe some life into like an active hope because I think the active hope is in our ability to just stretch our imagination to encompass everything without feeling overwhelmed. I don't want anyone listening to this to be overwhelmed because there's a way to think about this.
2: So I talked about energy and technology a little bit. Um, one of the other core parts of my story is uh, evolutionary psychology and who humans are. And that is where there's a lot of hope because for, you know, we have been 300,000 years as uh as a species, um, For 98% of that time, we lived in small uh, hunter-gatherer bands uh, in Tanzania, the plains of Africa. And there was a slight hierarchy, but everyone had equal consumption because we didn't have anything. We moved around and and we worked 20 hours a week uh, gathering food. Uh, hunting and the rest of the time we told stories and made love and had music and took naps and and played and so the we are descended from the best of the best at surviving and procreating uh and having communities that made it through the the perils of those hundreds of thousands of years and so deeply ingrained in us as much as our our physiology is our emotional drivers. We go through our daily lives today trying to replicate the same emotional states of our successful ancestors in a wildly different techno consumption culture. And most of us are miserable. This yeah. is not the stuff that gives us meaning and happiness. It's like we're in this matrix um, sort, of, sort of thing. So this is really a good news sort of thing if we study our evolution. Because we don't need all this stuff to live meaningful, happy lives. We want relationships with others. We want to be uh, in natural settings, hypernormal stimuli. The scientific word is supernormal stimuli, which is those things that target an evolutionary aspect of our wiring in a very intense way that makes us feel like we're doing something productive and healthy, but it's really not. Like a teenager in the United States or Australia playing a video game like Overshoot or, 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 uh, not Overshoot, <laughs> Overwatch or, or something like that in their mom's basement are feeling like they're, successfully bringing an antelope home to their tribe, but they're really sitting on a couch accessing a coal-fired server uh, on the internet somewhere. So there's so many of these things in society that trick us uh, into thinking that we're being happy and successful, but they're really not healthy for us. So I think as our material flows become more expensive or less available, we're going to rediscover some of those things that this last 50 years of of Disneyland orgy of consumption have have brought our attention away from, and we're gonna start to naturally have community and more social relationships and networks as a response. And my work, or my hope, is that we start to build those social networks ahead of when we have to build them. And that's all the work that I'm doing is to try to build Um, social capital in communities around my country and perhaps other countries um, so that people can look ahead of what's coming and, and start to build this now. It's my hope that this is a species level conversation in that what I really think is happening is we had to live through this carbon pulse where we're burning through these fossil materials and reserves 10 million times faster than they were trickle charged by daily photosynthesis. We had to like experience the Las Vegas, all you can eat smorgasbord couple of generations as a culture. We had to recognize what we're doing to the natural world in order to wise up and move from being clever to maybe having some wisdom and restraint. And the more humans that understand where we came from, what we're doing, how we're doing it, what's capable in the future, um, then that's my real goal is to get orders of magnitude more creative pro-future humans engaged in this story. Um, but I do think I recognize that the story is kind of scary. And so to just lead with the truth leads to fear. And I think fear, uh, unfortunately fear also works, but I think fear is going to work, uh, to people selling guns and gold and things like that, and not going to really help a pro social future. And so I, I want to, um, you know, choose a different sort of narrative and, and message to get a lot more people thinking about this, but I also think to just be hopeful and to just say, here's what you should think about and and be hopeful is also not being entirely honest. I think we have to really understand um, the plight that we're on and how energy, materials, climate, the environment, other species, money, and our brains fit together to understand um, what is what, what's still open as paths and what things don't make sense. Like you mentioned, the, the tech elite are not gonna magically um, solve this by better technology. I mean, technology requires materials. Materials are 100% correlated with GDP. So if we continue to grow, we're gonna double the amount of stuff that we use every 25 years or so as a global culture, as one example.
0: A and B, they're not pro social in their design mind like
2: no and, and why, this it,
0: why, why the hell would we give our well-being as a as a species over to a whole lot of people in silicon valley ah, who are,
2: so this this gets to some a word that you haven't brought up yet i don't know if you read my academic paper um but I, it's i
0: didn't read your academic paper
2: <laughs> you were forgiven you were forgiven <laughs> um It's called Economics for the Future Beyond the Superorganism, and what I did is I lay out how all this fits together in that humans in this era of material abundance, and remind me to tell you about what uh, French President Macron said last week about this. But in this era uh, where stuff is so cheap and abundant, what we've done is we self-organize as families as small businesses, as corporations, as nations, as a global culture in order to op- uh, to maximize profits. And the profits are uh, 99% linked to energy and the energy is 85% linked to fossil energy. And so we have outsourced our decision-making and planning to the market. And billionaires and politicians are not in control of this. This system is taking on, taking on a life of its own. And so it's not the fault of these billionaire tech people. They're following the rules of the social and economic structure in order to develop a product charge a profit. And if people want your product, you will get rich. And there is nowhere in there for a pro social save the environment based on our current system. So climate change is not the problem. Climate change is a symptom of the underlying problem of a social species finding this enormous treasure trove and treating it as if it were a perpetual bank account, like it was the interest, instead of the reality is is we're drawing that bank account down very rapidly.
0: What was the word that I didn't use?
2: Superorganism. Humanity- as a whole, is now self-organized as an energy dissipating structure, like a blind amoeba that's just sloughing forward, grabbing uh, energy and materials without a plan, without thinking about it. That's kind of what we're doing as a global culture. And you kind of have to wake up and recognize that that's what's going on in order to have a, a grassroots response to living differently, because it's not going to happen on its own. I think the default that will happen is the super organism will run out of cheap, you know, uh, goodies to, 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 to enable it to continue to grow. And then we have a moment, which I call the great simplification, that starts the unwind of a couple centuries of complexification, which is humans adding more energy and complexity to a global system. And I've I, I realize I've gone back to the head part um, of the conversation, but
0: my purpose as all of this comes into my own awareness is just to share, share with mm. everyone who's listening. Get like really thoughtful, really deep, really juicy wisdom keepers to kind of share with us all of these layers, so that we can expand our collective consciousness together. And I think what I love about this is it's practical, it's real, you know, this is happening. I think we can all see it just by living our lives. We don't have to be PhD specialists. We can see that we've got too much stuff and we're consuming too much and the economy is toggled to things that we don't even, that don't even make life worth living. We know that the system is so broken and we are not even factored into the system anymore and the most vulnerable of us are factored in the least like that doesn't yeah. work that's mm. not that's not okay that's not like anyone coming from any wisdom tradition or any spiritual tradition we look after each other or we yeah. we die together
2: yeah uh i mean you're you're absolutely right i mean if you if you just think about it from an individual consumption standpoint The wanting of things is stronger than the having of things. So we get our dopamine response when we decide to go to the store to buy that new shoes or the purse or the car or whatever. But then once we have it, we don't get that dopamine surge anymore. Dopamine motivates us to buy it or to do the behavior, which is why we end up with these storage sheds that are full of stuff from our previous life and we never even open them. So, our entire economic system is de facto turning billions of barrels of ancient sunlight into microliters of dopamine with nothing really to show for it. And overlaid on top of that is an institutional economic structure that's optimizing the size of how much stuff that is without looking at the well being of nature and how people are really doing at all scales. So, that's what somehow needs to change. And it's not a hopeless task because the silver lining is we don't need all this energy and stuff to be happy and healthy except for the people on the bottom that don't have access to energy and stuff at all but go on
0: yes and i think there's a massive sort of cult socio-cultural piece here there's a bit here there's a story here that you and i are telling and i know that there's like i mean I'm talking to you. What an honour, what a privilege. You know this stuff, you are an expert in your field um, and you have a message to tell us, which I think in our conversation we've already heard and it's exquisite and incredible and it is deeply hopeful because it's practical, I feel, um, uh, because it is not untethered from reality. It's tethered to reality actually more than the bulk of our fantasies about status and growth. I think GDP is a fantasy. These things are illusionary. They're they're illusions. They're constructs. The whole thing is a construct. And then there's base reality, which is we live on that beautiful blue planet. There is an ecological ceiling and there are um, functions of the ecology that are billions of years years in research and development they work better than anything we can manufacture better than any tech we can come up with we're not that clever so we need to just get back in harmony with living systems on earth and I often say the purpose of financial capital like if there is a purpose of money right now and and if you have a lot of it and you're listening to this or if you're in charge of a lot of it if you're a gatekeeper anything if you have a little bit of it it's it's a different story. But if you have a lot, the purpose of financial capital should be in service of life. That's the real totally thing.
2: Totally agree. Totally agree. And I think financial capital as a marker of excess status relative to other humans has a fuse, uh, a ticking fuse on it. So if you are a shepherd of resources, I would, and this is a long conversation, but I would advocate considering a spend down strategy of accelerating, turning that financial capital into real capital, social built human and natural capital to help communities and help life, as you're saying, navigate. Uh, the things at risk through the bottlenecks of the 21st century, because at some point in the future, not to be too dystopian on this conversation, this first conversation, at some point in the future, those electronic digits may not be transferable into real things. Uh, And so now is when communities in the natural world need the excess uh, direction of, uh, I mean, money is a claim on these other things. And so we can direct that money towards things of value now rather than waiting 80 years from now to, to cash it in.
0: I love that you've got an evolutionary psychology part of your background because there is so much to unpack in what you just said and so much that I want to talk about because one of the things, like the thing that's getting in the way between us and like hearing what you've just said about energy consumption and how we've actually <laughs> we've actually tied our future to a depletion that like to a resource that's ending like it's so um, it's kind of sweet in a way, you know? It's like a, it's like a typical human thing to do when we're not connected to ourselves, to our bodies, to the planet, to each other, we go oh, we can just keep doing this thing. It's like something one of my kids would do. I can just keep doing No, No, you need to keep putting back in the pot in the middle between all of us. You can't just keep taking, like it's something a child does. You know, they have to be told this is the boundary and this is where it stays healthy and this is when you go out of the boundary. And so it's sweet in that way and fucking tragic in all other real ways. What I find is a lot of the gatekeepers... Um, from politicians to financial managers and and economists to even corporations and then people in business and then you keep going like any strata i feel like the gatekeepers there are gatekeepers who i'm i'm less um simpatico with that i find get in the way and and this gets to how humans make sense of things these are like the engineers or the people who are good at governance operations like We all think really differently and we have different personality types and we come at problem solving and comprehension from such different lenses like you were saying before and the clash between those comprehension lenses is so enormous. That is how you get artists being devalued in the economy to the degree that they are, wherein the way an artist comprehends everything you're talking about. And this conversation is so profoundly important to how we build the world together. But the way an engineer does it is so like I'm married to an aerospace engineer, right? Like I totally love how he thinks and I need him for the, for things to function. Like he's a function guy and a systems design guy. And I'm half the time off with the fairies and need to be tethered to place, right? And so so how the hell do we sort that out? Because that's how you get the techno lords solving shit for all of us because they're they're so good at solving problems and functionality, but then they oversimplify and they don't think holistically.
2: I have two, two responses to that. First of all, if you go back 20 years and you can go back 20 years and find my talks online, I have always said that we need the artists, the storytellers, the musicians, the creative people to understand this first and tell stories and narratives and change the cultural dialogue. And then you get the architects and engineers involved to figure shit out and how we're going to get there. Not, not the other way around. Oh,
0: Nate, you're my guy. This is (laughs) the best conversation and no one would believe it. But it is not, it's not whimsy what you're saying. It's not some kind of weird fantasy or hippie dip lightweight thing that you just said. It is so profound. Say more.
2: And then the other thing is our culture rewards reductionist expertise you are an expert in this thing but what's end up happening is we have islands of expertise around the world that exists with within oceans of nonsense so everyone is an expert on renewable energy or climate change or finance or psychology and there's no one that's uniting how those things fit together to fly up high enough and see a map of how they fit together so that you can evolve all their expertises towards a common goal. And I think that's the era that we're approaching where we have to have competent generalists who understand how things fit together, and then involve the, the experts um, on, on uh, what are we going to do. So that's what I'm trying to do with my work is, is, te- is fly up high enough to tell that, that look down at, at how things fit together, and that'll inform uh, what's possible and what's kind of a waste of time.
0: I just love it. I wanted to say, I had to remind you, what did Macron say?
2: Oh. So I did a podcast a couple weeks ago, a pretty well-known podcast in the US, Aubrey Marcus, and I told Aubrey, the conversation that we just had can't be spoken by a high level politician because it's too threatening. And on the plane home, I saw that French president Macron said, we have reached the end of an era of abundance where we could have access to all these material things and technology. And that era is ending. The freaking president of France said that. So I was wrong. I, I didn't think that a, a world leader would say that now he's pretty slippery and smooth, and maybe he's not going to follow up on that, but he actually said the quiet part out loud there. He's right about that. We are approaching the end of abundance. It's just very difficult for a politician to unpack what that really implies
0: yeah what would he do if he was going to unpack that like if he was going to follow up on that what would that look like
2: well there's two ways to follow up on it right there's one way is to prepare your government uh for the things that need to be done and the other is to say inspiring yet honest things to your population of citizens which run the gamut from left to right. And like you said, there are architects and engineers and farmers and artists in there. So it's very difficult. I mean, humans, there's something called loss aversion. Whereas if you start with $10,000, you get a win. Yeah,
0: just just so it clear, you're about to tell everyone what loss aversion is. I'm like the queen of loss aversion.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to define it then.
0: i mean I'm, I'm t- totally a culprit. I don't loss of, I, I make decisions because of my fear of loss aversion. So like, explain what it is.
2: <laughs> well, real briefly, uh, the the pain of losing something is more negatively intense than the pleasure or the positive feeling of the same equivalent gain so if you start with ten thousand dollars and you have a windfall and you get to eleven thousand dollars and you measure that psychically within your brain and then you go from eleven thousand back to ten thousand you're still still where you started but you feel worse because um and this has an ancestral uh explanation i'm not
0: not just a dickhead (laughs)
2: No, it's a totally natural thing because when you had plenty of resources, a little bit more wasn't a big deal. But when you had limited resources, losing some was potentially fatal. And so those people who were averse to losses ended up making it through some bottleneck events. And this is relevant because in a society that maximizes consumption in our marketing and our media when you try to tell people that they're going to have to consume less not because uh, we're ordering you to but just because of the laws of physics and oil and and everything else we're going to have less that is not a marketable prospect now you can sell different you can sell better but you can't sell less um so that's why loss aversion is relevant to a populist story about these things and which is also why pr and communication is is important now the good news is is it, it really isn't about it is about less material consumption but it isn't about a lesser lifestyle necessarily and this gets into how we redefine our 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 success and our well-being and our consumption and our capital even um I used to be, I used to make a lot of money 20 years ago, and now I make very little money and I have very little savings, but I get paid in things that are not dollars. I get paid in my students' reaction and I get paid in people learning from my podcast and I get paid in teaching things to people and the brain experience I get from deep conversations with Daniel Schmachtenberger. I get paid in different things and Barry Barry Liverman. That's right. <laughs> so uh, anyways, I don't know where I was going with that. No, but um, You were
0: going like to the most profound bit and point of it all, which requires enormous maturity. And most people like would have to have a shocking life event to even get that, you know, that um, electric shock to go, oh, fuck, yeah, none of this shit makes sense or has value. What has real value is everything you just said. Like, but that. How do you really feel? Like do you have days when you go shit I could I could totally own stuff and have like own my house and have a holiday house I could have been making money. Do you have those moments where you go Nate you're a sucker?
2: I have had many of those moments the last 15 years. I was like why didn't I just stay on Wall Street 5 years longer and save some money. Um but I don't I don't have I don't miss oh I could have more stuff. I don't no, get that no. at all. No, I mean the the, the missing that I feel is I'm uncertain. I don't live in a country like Australia or Canada. So if I get sick, I don't have enough money in this country that would like I would spend all my money to heal whatever surgery I needed or whatever that's something that I wish I had more cushion in the bank and I'm not alone there are tens or hundreds of millions of Americans that feel that same anxiety but beyond that I I don't need to have a pile of stuff um you know, I have this house and some land next to it and I have dogs. I don't have children and I have a forest. and every morning I go for a long walk with my dogs and, uh, and I have a ton of friends, <laughs> so I feel incredibly rich. And I also, it's not an addiction, but it's, uh, I, I do feel, a, a depth in my soul of understanding the human predicament and sharing it with others as kind of my calling, uh, to be a teacher and to help people get on the the, the real path between the blue and the red pill. Uh, and that gives me deep, deep uh, reward and satisfaction that I'm spending the hours of my life in the right way.
0: That's yeah, so beautiful, Nate. I think when you said it then, that I think the matrix was a shit analogy in a way. Okay. It doesn't. And no, not what you just used. The blue and the red pill is correct. Like that's the good bit, right? But the bit that I was thinking that was insufficient was that when you take whichever pill, I never remember which pill it is, that gets you out of the false reality. Yeah,
2: I don't either. Yeah, Yeah. it
0: gets you out of the false reality. The reality was so bleak in the movie. It was so destitute and everything was grey like literally you know the 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 mise-en-scene and the costumes were all void of colour and they had rips and tears in the clothes and life was eating slop porridge and you know it just there was no art and music and joy and a great bowl of you know um Dull and sitting around the fire, it didn't have the joy. And I think that that was insufficient. That that vision and that storytelling was was great for a Hollywood moment. But what we're saying is, between the red and the blue pill, it's actually it's a strikingly different image. Um, because if you leave the false reality, it could be that that one on the other side is deep and joyous and rich, like like you just described. It's actually connected and whole and makes us feel more human, not less human.
2: I totally agree with that. And I think the first step is that we are so steeped in the consensus trance of what's on the television and what's on YouTube and the the fact that certain things get upregulated and certain things like my movie get downregulated and The first step is to find others who understand and feel the same way that you do about reality and build conversations. Even if you don't find answers, to just start those real conversations and then scale outward from there. I I think find the others that are feeling the way that you just described. And my sense is there are lots of us.
0: There are lots of us. I'm traveling for the next eight weeks. in my um, avid bid to consume as much fossil fuels as possible in a short amount of time. (laughs)
2: So So here's what I tell my students. Um, You can't be perfect. If you try to, um, like, eat less meat and fly less and drive an electric car, you can never be perfect enough. So I prefer to tell them, to maximize your impact on the planet rather than minimize your impact and do the right things that uh, lead to your own hygiene of behavior. But if you consume less, if I consumed less, I could live in a little shack on the back 40 of my property and I would never be doing podcasts like this. I flew to Finland to talk to their government about energy depletion scenarios. I want to impact things at a larger scale rather than be a smaller one eight billionth of the problem.
0: I love it, mate. That is the kind of big thinking that I adore because it helps us live in the gnarly paradoxes and the the contradictions and and the icky, messy weirdness of this moment. And I love that frame. Have maximum impact, not minimum in the sense that <clears throat> and and that is true for me if i have high agency high sense making i got to get out on the hustings i got to do the good work i've also got to nourish my family and fill my cup um and we've got to do that without um promoting a kind of fetishized lifestyle that other people would you know feel envy i love that you said we're not greedy we're envious i oh, think it's beautiful and what's beautiful about it's such a um a, um a compassionate frame for how we can massage our brains and our hearts and our hands into the place that we want to gift our children. Um, I've got three and that's three out of eight billion, but they feel like eight billion to me. And I'm super grateful for this conversation and for the work that you're doing. What I have to just insert here that's really interesting is there's no women in the sense-making space.
2: I know and it's a problem for my podcast.
0: That female voice translation that that weaving it into a flow state flow states are often relating to male flow states, right? But the feminine flow state is really different because we have the menstrual cycle. We have the life cycle of menopause and like we are living and literally embodying a completely different flow state to like hyper male flow state. Now, don't get me wrong. They've
2: never thought about that before, but that totally makes sense.
0: Right? And so- I think the sense-making world doesn't have the feminine in it. It's a real problem because if you want to do the heart and the soul work, you must have deep, rich, feminine flow state baked in there because we bear and raise children. Like there's so many flow states that are like important to interweave in this.
2: Management. So this, this is going to get us going down another hour, which we don't have, but real briefly, I was just at two major. All the time, con-
0: all the time in the world. yes. Yeah.
2: I was just at two major conferences on collapse and sense-making and the poly crisis. And there were about a hundred people at each of them. No, one of them was 200 people. And, People were just jumping around and meeting people and learning. And by the third day, they had self-organized into little groups of women and men. And oh, the conversations, oh, there was 50, 50, 50, oh, wow. 50 women and men, Oh wow. but the conversations hmm. were totally different. And I think men from an evolutionary sense more diplomacy and um, go meet another tribe. And women are more about the nurturing. And frankly, I think we need massive more feminine energy, more women in this cultural transition space because from an evolutionary standpoint, women actually have the ability to think rationally about the future more than men do. I mean, this is not a sexist comment to say that men need 15 minutes to procreate and women have to invest a year. And so women naturally are thinking about things in the future more and we we just i mean it i mean it's trite to say it is a male dominated culture and part of that is due to this massive energy surplus this is the origins of hierarchy is when people there was a surplus resource and then we organized around how to protect that and and etc so
0: let me tell you something wild about that that i've been thinking right because as i'm immersed in this work and i'm immersed in business and the economy and investing and a whole lot of spaces that I sit in where I see the intersection between it all. And one of the really interesting things is, is my therapist uh, this year, my new therapist, she's fucking awesome. And we talk about the menstrual cycle a lot because of psychological flow states, right? So it's like she'll often say, Where are you in your cycle? And what's really fascinating that I've picked up on this year really intensely is that for a four-week flow cycle for a woman, right? Estrogen levels and, and all the levels change, right? They they peak, they trough. It's epic, right? You feel like you're on drugs. When they trough, just before the menstrual cycle, you feel like you're on drugs. And they're not good ones. They're shit mm. ones, right? Your cognitive function is impaired. Um, Like a lot of things happen in the flow state, right? When you come out of your period, your estrogen levels start to go up again, week one to one and a half is like peak performance and it's advised now that like if you're a woman that's plugged into your flow state, you really need to put like my conversation with you or Daniel, i got to put them in that period. Ideally, it would be in that zone where I'm peak function heat kind of operations, and I can really smash it out. And I was thinking, no shit, men don't want to wait around for women when they're in week three. Week three, I'm a fucking basket case. I'm trying to reorganise my entire mood. I'm trying to get shit done and I'm dragging, hauling ass, really. I'm physically, like, way below par, and I can pump weights at the gym for the first two weeks. The second two weeks, i am got to be careful because i got a parent, and wow. if I was a man, of course I'd burn fossil fuels because you guys are week one all the time.
2: But maybe a lower week one it than female are every- a yeah. Regulated week yeah, yeah, yeah. One all yeah. the time. I had never thought about it that way. Um,
0: and, and so, of course, yeah. we design the economy in your favour. Um, women and children need to hide behind a bush. We're vulnerable. We are vulnerable yeah. hormonally, physically, psychologically, and because we've got to protect our cubs, we've got to go behind the bush. We can't be hunting. Yeah. Like And, like, heaps of women want to hunt. They don't want to be. So, yes. Yeah. But there's a, a biological imperative there. I just think it's really interesting in terms of how the economy was organized and that thing about fossil fuels and burn, baby, burn, and let's go. It's a It doesn't have a, a biological flow state that is helpful to the planet and community because of that.
2: Totally agree.
0: No downtime. No need.
2: Totally to agree. I will uh, put a little caveat. There's been amazingly clever new research showing that a lot of historical hunters in the hunter gathering were actually women.
0: Yeah. With babies on their backs.
2: No, there was communal child rearing. You left it with your cousin or or whatever. I
0: always wonder now what were they doing when they were bleeding and running?
2: Well, then maybe not. Maybe it was, they were hunting in week one and two.
0: Yeah. I love that. You're a legend. Thank you.
2: I'm not a legend. I'm just a human that cares about the future. And My skill, um, I'm above average intelligence, but I'm 50 IQ points away from Daniel and some of these other people. I have a huge social network that I have learned from all these scientists about the brain and about the climate and about energy. And I've pulled out kind of the best things that made sense and kind of condensed it all. And I'm just a Midwestern uh, human who cares and sees what's coming. And I just want to help as best I can and pay it forward. And, you know, this is the story, a big ass story, the story of our times. So let's get more people involved in the story. And so if you have the ability to uh, expand and leverage the response, I'm I'm happy to engage further and i quite like you as a human being so there's that so uh onwards
0: onwards thank you so much nate it's been the best we'll we'll touch but i'll follow up okay i'll send you okay the... okay
2: excellent See you, thanks barry have a good bye. one bye ciao
0: i love my job uh i'm here i'm here and i'm happy i'm happy because i've just spoken to an awesome human and that makes me happier than any other thing. And I nearly cancelled on him today because I had other things on. So if I can say anything, don't cancel <laughs> the awesome conversations with awesome people. Oh. Yes, my brain is delighted. Um, I just got to say, like, come on, guys, like, Fucking let's go. We've got shit to do. We have got a world to remake and it starts in our minds and hearts. We have to rethink things. We have to be spacious and juicy and holistic about how we come at problem solving, not reductionist and um, narrow and fundamentalist. No. Spacious, juicy, loving, joyous curious get curious far out so good nate Hagens.
1: thanks so much for joining us on the dumbo feather podcast nate Hagens' podcast is the great simplification and you can find that on the same channel that you're listening to us on Courses at the Institute for the Study of Energy and Our Future are also available. You can find more info about that in the show notes. And do keep an eye out for the series that Barry will be doing with Nate, which will drop in the coming weeks. The next episode of our Good Society series is in two weeks' time. Please subscribe to Dumbo Feather Podcast so you don't miss out. Thanks again for joining us.